Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Elliot Bazzano. For every program, we choose a new and exciting book and chat with the author. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Asma Afsaruddin, Professor of Near Eastern Languages and Cultures at the University of Indiana, about her exciting book, Contemporary Issues in Islam, published by Edinburgh University Press in 2015. As the title of the monograph suggests, Contemporary Issues in Islam by Asma of Sadruddin guides the reader through an organized and compelling narrative of reflections on hot-button topics in the modern world. The monograph offers a provocative balance of historical contextualization, close reading of texts, review of key scholars, and political analysis. Given its treatment of topics such as Islamic law, gender, international relations, and interfaith dialogue, the book should prove useful in a graduate or undergraduate context, either as a whole or as individual chapters, particularly as a conversation starter, given the depths to which each chapter points. Although the scope of the book may appear ambitious, Professor F. Sadruddin is well-equipped to manage the breadth of her study into a concise, lucid, and well-written text. Given her research background in jihad and violence, as well as Quranic hermeneutics. Moreover, contemporary issues in Islam is a mature work that reflects decades of careful research and intellectual synthesis, with ample attention to both primary and secondary literature. The monograph will likely appeal not only to scholars and students in religious studies and Islamic studies, but also political science and history, as well as journalists. I hope you enjoy the interview, and without further ado, Here's my conversation with Professor Asma Afsaruddin. Good morning, Asma. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Good morning, Elliot. This is my pleasure. So our tradition at New Books in Islamic Studies is to have the authors tell us a little bit about their background before we begin talking about the book. So could you tell us a little bit about how you became interested in Islamic studies in general, as well as your project in particular? Sure, yes. Well, um, while I was an undergrad at Oberlin College uh, in Ohio, um, I took courses on the Middle East and began to formally study study Arabic. And then I became smitten with the whole um, area studies concept. So at first I thought I would go to graduate school and specialize in international relations, but with a focus on the modern Middle East. Um, but then when I discussed my career plans with my advisor, I was advised to take economics courses at Oberlin to prepare myself for such a graduate career. And let's just say that I discovered that um, economics was not exactly my cup of tea and that I was actually more interested in the, the religion, the history and culture of the region. And so that's why I decided to pursue an advanced degree in Islamic studies. 
And so your book that we're talking about today, what mm-hmm. what sorts of things led you to pursue that project? Well, I was actually uh, commissioned by Edinburgh University Press, the publisher of the book, uh, to write it. Um, Carol Hillenbrand, who's a well-known scholar of Islamic history, is currently the editor of the newly revived Islamic Service series, um, which used to be edited by Montgomery Watt in its earlier incarnation and was also then published by EUP. Um, So it was revived under her and is now called appropriately the new Edinburgh Islamic Surveys. And Hillenbrand, Professor Hillenbrand, has been commissioning various authors for different projects and different titles in the series. Mm Mm-hmm. And so going back to the question of your background a little bit, who who are some of your formative mentors that you either worked with directly or scholars that had a big influence on your career path? Right. Um, Well, I received my Ph.D. degree from Johns Hopkins University. So at the Homewood campus in Baltimore, my doctor father was Georg Krotkoff, who was an Austrian Arabist and who taught me to read medieval Arabic texts with, uh, with great rigor and almost tedious precision. And to this day, I defend this kind of uh, old-fashioned philological approach to classical Arabic texts, which focuses on um, mastery of the intricacies of Arabic grammar, and of course, everyone in the field knows how intricate Arabic grammar is. Uh, He also taught me to pay very careful attention to the mechanics of language as a prelude to any kind of meaningful engagement with the text. Now, Johns Hopkins also had a Washington, D.C. campus, uh, which was known as the School of Advanced and International Studies, or SAIS for short. And there, I also studied with Majid Khadouri, and I think that name is still well known to this current generation of Islamicists. Uh, He was a well-known scholar of Islamic thought and law and uh, published extensively on issues of war and peace in the Islamic tradition and on Islamic political thought also um, and and law in general. So that did influence quite a bit my future um, trajectory of research. So from both these mentors, I learned um, that, that a life of the mind can be eminently satisfying and that there is no shortcut to scholarship. You do have to pay your dues if you can get to a certain stage in your um, in your scholarly career. Mm-hmm. And so given your background in classical Arabic, and of mm-hmm. course you, you've published on a number of different kinds of topics, so for writing this book on contemporary issues in Islam, how did you go about selecting your particular list of contemporary issues? since presumably you could have had dozens of things to choose from. Right, yes. Well, the list actually kind of suggested itself naturally to me through years of teaching, of uh, doing research and public speaking. And I noticed that my students and public audiences, and especially in the post-9-11 uh, milieu, uh, that they would constantly ask me about issues of politics, gender, war and peacemaking within Islam, violence and militancy, and about whether Muslims can coexist with non-Muslims, whether in the Islamic heartlands or in the West. And of course, it's kind of the million-dollar question whether Islam is compatible with modernity. 
So responding to such questions over the years made me realize that these were the issues that people wanted to see discussed in greater depth and detail. So in many ways, these, these topics naturally suggested themselves to me when I was approached by Edinburgh University Press to write this monograph. Uh, and I think, you know, someone opening the book familiar with um, Islamic studies and the kinds of questions student ask, students mm-hmm. ask, uh, it's, yeah, it's a very appropriate set of items to pursue. And uh, on the one hand, it's ambitious, but on the other hand, um, I think you, one, of the, one of the strengths of the book is that you select these hot button issues and you talk about them in a, in a cogent and organized manner. So if we could get into the particulars of the chapters, you, you start off writing about modernity and secularism. Um, what, was there a particular reason that you wanted to start things off on that foot? Right. Um, well, I thought it was important to set the stage for an in-depth discussion about what do we exactly mean by these terms. People assume that they're fixed terms uh, with, you know, one predictable monolithic meaning and understanding, which is simply not true. So one of the purposes uh, of the introduction and, and the first chapter, actually, was to problematize these concepts and to convey to the reader that these are contested notions and that they are understood differently in different historical contexts and in different um, societies based on the experiences of the societies with modernity, with industrialization, with, with religion and the fraught relationship between religion and state. So, um, you know, that, that was really the main purpose of that introductory chapter, to set the stage for, uh, for the reader in a way that they would get an understanding, a premonition that uh, I was going to muddy the waters for them mm-hmm. to some extent. And so, so since you're focusing on this term modernity, what kinds of intellectual movements and time periods do you have in mind for your particular project? Well, you know, for modernity, um, you know, I, I mean, that's kind of a, uh, again, a kind of a contested understanding of exactly when, when can we uh, trace the genesis of what we call modernity. Uh, and, you know, roughly, I would say, after the 17th century or so, uh, you know, with the onset of industrialization, with uh, increasing separation of, of state and religion, particularly in the European context, um, dramatically different roles for women and, and uh, challenges to the traditional structure of the family and so forth. I think all that signifies sort of the, the uh, issues that have come to define modernity, or, although I think we're better off speaking of modernities in the plural, to again, to emphasize that. This is not a unif- uniform phenomenon for you know, all societies and cultures. Right. And so on this note, of course, too, you move on to talk about the idea of the sharia, which is a multivalent tradition as well. So what, what are the key issues in terms of thinking about sharia or Islamic law or jurisprudence in the modern world for you? Well, in the section on Quran and Sharia, I start off by discussing, I'm sorry, on, on Sharia itself, I start off by discussing the principal components of the Sharia, which are uh, the Quran and Hadith. But it's also important to emphasize that the word Sharia itself in Arabic means simply the way 
the path, right? And in classical Arabic dictionaries, it is often further glossed as the way to a watering hole. So this root meaning indicates to us how we should translate Sharia into English, not as law, but as the divine source from which we should derive our moral and ethical principles, social and legal regulations. In other words, uh, our way of life. So the broad moral and ethical principles contained in the Sharia need to be interpreted by human beings in order to extrapolate specific rulings that are applicable in given social and historical circumstances. And uh, since these rulings are the result of human deliberation reasoning, they're subject to change and reform, especially as social circumstances change. So one of the greatest epistemological challenges faced by modern Muslims has cropped up because of the inability of some to make this distinction between Sharia as the font of eternal principles and fiqh or jurisprudence, which is a purely human activity by means of which legal regulations that are contingent by nature are derived from these eternal principles. So disentangling these human-generated humanly generated rules from divine commandments remains one of the greatest challenges facing modern Muslims. And this is a point I think I hope I drive home um, in, in the, especially the chapter dealing with the Sharia. Yeah, and on this note too, you, you, you connect it specifically to Quran and Hadith, which have different sort of hierarchical meanings mm-hmm. for Muslims historically, and you talk about that. And so what are what are some of the things dealing with Quranic hermeneutics, and then we can talk about hadith, that have shifted in the contemporary world in terms of making sense of sharia? Um, well, to make a long and complex story short, essentially what ended up happening by the classical period is that many scholars started to give precedence to hadith in order to interpret Quranic um, commandments and injunctions in particular historical circumstances. So oftentimes, I mean, as it's been stressed by Fazl Rahman and others, the Quran is not a law book, right? I mean, less than 10% of the Quranic text has to do with uh, specific legal commandments. So the Hadith is, of course, uh, the, the second source that Muslims turn to for guidance in their um, daily affairs, in affairs pertaining to, uh, uh, you know, interpersonal relations, social matters, and legal matters, and so forth. Um, but oftentimes, and, and this is just a well-known fact, I mean, there were reports attributed to the Prophet that were clearly being fabricated in his name to lend credence to certain theological and legal positions that cropped up in the course of time. And what happens is, um, we find this in the Tafsir literature, and we find this in the legal literature, is that many of these hadiths were then, uh, shall we say, commandeered, right, to create authoritative normative positions on certain matters, where um, many modernists and feminist scholars are arguing today um, they should not have been applied, and that their normative value can be questioned too. So I think what modernist scholars are now doing is to reverse, to a certain extent, this, uh, what appears to them as excessive reliance on hadith to the detriment of the Quranic text and often subverting the meaning of the original Quranic text um, 
in a way that has created gender hierarchies, um, authoritarian political systems, um, excessive valorization of the military jihad and so forth, all issues that I discuss in the course of the book and, and uh, then problematize in relation to this sort of huge understanding of the relative uh, uh, weight of Quranic text vis-a-vis the, the hadith. And you, you talk about how there, like you were saying, there could be some tension between hadith that either seemingly contradict or clearly contradict things mm-hmm. in, in the Quran. And so are there some particular examples of um, hermeneutical moves that people have made in the modern world that exemplify this potential yeah. tension between Quran and hadith? Yeah. Uh, and and I should say, it's not just simply an outright contradiction that we're talking about, but sometimes where the Quran is silent on certain matters and hadiths um, are often deployed to fill that space. And that also is being uh, revisited and criticized by many scholars in a modernist vein. So let me uh, talk about, um, well, the whole notion of political Islam, which is so um, predominant today. Um, terms in the Quran that in themselves have no overt political meaning have been invested with political meaning over the course of time. And I do discuss that in the section on Islam and politics. Um, terms like Amr and Hukum, which in the Quran simply mean matter and sometimes just command in a general sense, and Hukum usually to mean uh, judgment and pertaining to God's judgment are then um, redeployed in, in political treatises with overtly political meanings. And so when we understand this historical trajectory, we can understand this discourse as being time-bound, that people needed to find some kind of religious mandate for evolving political systems, right? And I talk about how Abderazik, um, in the aftermath of the dissolution of the caliphate, uh, makes this point very boldly in his book, for which he was soundly criticized. Uh, but if you look at his treatise today, objectively, less emotionally, then we realize that much of what he says actually is, um, you know, based on the sources. I mean, he, he's suggesting that we do go back to the Quran as a source and, and, and challenge those highly politicized understanding of certain Quranic terms and, 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 and uh, specific verses to create this notion of a mandated, uh, religiously mandated political order that Muslims are duty-bound to establish in every time and age, right? I think that was a seminal study that I think, given the circumstances of the time, did not receive the kind of uh, serious engagement with it. Um, I mean, there were polemical engagements with it because people, people I think, were outraged uh, during those political circumstances by this argument, but I think we, which we can re-engage with great profit today and um, build upon some of those arguments. And that's already happening, I think. There is more and more of a tendency, I find, uh, uh, among at least uh, more modernist and, and liberal Muslims to question some of these time-bound assumptions uh, and one of the hermeneutic moves that um, is typically made is to go back to the foundational texts and reread them and revisit the interpretations that have grown up around these texts um, through the classical period.
and beyond. Uh-huh. And so, since you have a separate chapter on Sharia and politics, was there anything that prompted you to separate these specifically, given that there might be some natural overlap between the two topics? Or do you, do you think there is natural overlap between these two topics? Um, there is, there is overlap, definitely. Um, but because I also wanted to get into the contemporary period and talk about the Arab Spring as well, and how arguments for democracy are now being constructed on the basis of religious texts or at least religious principles and values, right? Uh, principles like shura and ijma'a, how they can be uh, aggrandized uh, and redeployed in the modern context to mean democracy and consensual government. Um, that's why I thought that needed to be discussed in greater detail, and therefore I think it warranted a separate chapter uh, all to itself. So the, this, you talked about how the different chapters had been uh, at least partially inspired by discussions you've had over the years with students to see mm-hmm. what is on people's minds. And so there's this question that a lot of people have, you know, what's the relationship between Islam and politics? And, you know, there there can be all sorts of uh, strange assumptions beneath that question, but nonetheless, it's on people's minds. Why? Why do you think that is? Why are people in the West, let's say, so so curious about the relation between Islam and politics, especially in Muslim majority countries? Right. Um, I think it would be useful here then to point to some. Uh, differences between historical experiences of Christian uh, Europeans and uh, Muslims with the relationship of religion to the state. So um, given their different historical and political trajectories and different kinds of religious institutions that developed over time, I think Muslims and Christians, if you're going to speak about them very broadly, have come to conceptualize the relation between religion and state in different ways. So in medieval Christian Europe, um, religious authority became highly centralized in the church, which exercised considerable influence in both the religious and political spheres. But in the Islamic world, typically, religious authority was and remains diffuse because it never became centralized in any particular institution as it did in the Christian world. So to effect social and political reform uh, during the European Reformation, reformers had to struggle to wrest power away from the Catholic Church and vest it in the state. So the tension between religion and politics, uh, or the state, frequently manifested itself in you know, what we can describe as a radical anti-clericalism. And in the French context, this was called laicism and which until today remains highly suspicious of religion in the public sphere. So in, the, in European history, this kind of a secularist enterprise was a necessary prelude for reform and ultimately modernization. In the Islamic context, however, religious scholars typically adopted an oppositional role to rulers, and so were often advocates for the general populace against political tyranny. 
The religion therefore continues to be regarded by Muslims as an ally of the people against despots, and Muslims want religious values to be reflected in the political sphere. Now, this does not mean that they want theocracies, as is sometimes misrepresented in the Western media. Rather, Muslims tend to understand specific religious values and principles, and I mentioned some of them, like shura, uh, which means consultation, and ijma'a, consensus, to be supportive of democracies. And as I mentioned in the book, poll after poll, survey after survey, have shown that Muslims, more than, say, Eastern Europeans, want democratically elected governments and not a so-called Islamic state. And large percentages of populations in Muslim-majority societies are on record saying that they want both Sharia and democracy, uh, and they see no tension between the two. And so for people that might assume there is tension between those two, what, what does that tension or lack of tension look like on the ground in maybe one instance? Well, I mean, there are the Islamists, right? Uh, the, those people who advocate for an Islamic state, and they would claim that, uh, that Sharia and democracy are actually at odds with one another. But uh, we have to realize that their views are very ahistorical, um, and they understand the Islamic state to be something that is mandated by the Quran, even though, as I said, the Quran is completely um, apolitical. And so they see democracy as a concept that is of purely human provenance. And so it's a facto, just by that very fact, they understand it to be uh, antithetical to what uh, Islamic principles supposedly stand for. And as I mentioned, they do tend to read the Quranic text in a very politicized way. Um, but it, what's interesting is that given the genesis of political Islam in the, in the 20, early 20th century, there are actually more influenced by, ironically, European secularist discourses on nationalism and also by European totalitarian movements such as socialism and communism. I mean, if you, if you read someone like Sayyid Qutb, right, who's, I guess, in many ways a prime example of, a, of an Islamist or you know, someone who advocates for political Islam, I mean, he uses terms like the vanguard of the Islamic revolution, uh, you know, some of this kind of political vocabulary is, of course, highly reminiscent of European secular and totalitarian ideologies of the time. So, um, yeah, I think they, 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 they are very distinctive. The Islamists are, are kind of very distinctive in this particular worldview of theirs, although not all Islamists are the same. There are many that are now beginning to participate in elections and, and you know, in, in democratic um, uh, ways of governing. So could you say a little bit more about why particular notions of political Islam um, are, are things that have developed recently in terms of Islamic history? Well, as I said, um, it, you know, many of these Islamist movements began to arise in the 20th century. Of course, the immediate historical milieu for that was the abolition of the caliphate. Uh, by the the nationalist Turks, right? And then, um, so the uh, we know that the Muslim Brotherhood was established in 1928, right after the dissolution of the Caliphate, as a response to that situation. We're also talking about uh, the post-colonial milieu, where there's a general perception that 
local rulers had been installed by the colonial governments and they existed to do their bidding, that they did not actually represent the well-being and the interests of indigenous peoples. Um, they were perceived as being corrupt and tyrannical and uh, actually not even very good Muslims. Um, so I think all that colluded to create this sense of, you know, our way of life is under siege. Uh, if we created the perfect Islamic state, all our woes and grievances would disappear. And therefore, you know, it is our religious obligation to establish just governance and bring about this um, happy situation where Muslims can flourish within their own societies because they're governed by pious and righteous and wise rulers. So on, on this note of um, politics and justice, you move on to talk about gender. So right. could, could you start off by saying a little bit about how, how do political realities and contexts allow discussions of Islam and gender to take place uh, to begin with? Well, I would like to begin by emphasizing women's agency in this, um, that I think, first of all, it's highly significant that due to increasing access to education for Muslim women throughout the world means that larger numbers of women can now read and engage the foundational religious texts themselves. So elite Muslim women, of course, have always participated in the transmission of of religious knowledge, right? I mean, we know from the biographical dictionaries of Sahari and even Hajar that we've always had women scholars uh, in, in you know, some of the, the larger uh, education institutions in the Islamic world, but also, you know, in, in where they exercise their, their influence in smaller private uh, circles of scholars uh, and religious learning. But due to um, greater access to education, there are women now from all strata of society who can participate in the creation of religious knowledge and engage in the interpretation of religious texts. And this is happening even in some ultra-conservative societies like Saudi Arabia and Iran. And for many women, there's also the added economic necessity of having to work outside the home, which also challenges the structure of the traditional patriarchal family. So all these social and political realities on the ground have created the impetus for women to question androcentric, that is to say male-centered, interpretations of the Quran in particular, which they understand as having traditionally shored up patriarchal societies. And so women's readings of the same texts reveal a subversively egalitarian understanding of the same Quranic verses, and, and this is something I do discuss in great detail in Chapter 4, and um, these women-centered interpretations are providing a serious challenge to traditional interpretations, and as I argue at the end of the chapter, it, it, I, I think they have the potential to reshape traditional Muslim-majority societies, and I think we already see some evidence to that effect. I mentioned Zaina Anwar in Malaysia, and her Sisters in Islam project, which has which now developed into the Musawa project, right, which is engaging in exactly this kind of Quranic hermeneutics to challenge centuries-old uh, legal understandings of women's roles in society and appealing 
in many cases to the same, uh, particularly Quranic texts, um, to undermine what they understand to be you know, patriarchal and unjust interpretations of women's rights over time. And, and so you use terms like undermine and subversion. So, <laughs> and of course, when you're challenging old traditions, um, it is a form of subversion. And so what, what, what has been some of the backlash that these um, new female readings yeah. of classical texts have caused in the Muslim world? Well, there's some backlash against them, but I, I think it's also important to point out, and I do that in my book, that there's also been support for some of these projects. The reason being, again, I mean, they, these Muslim feminists clearly declare themselves to be committed Muslims, and that they're, doing, they're engaging in this kind of hermeneutic activity out of love for the tradition, uh, you know, not to subvert it or, or to, you know, cause people to fall away from Islam. They're staying firmly within that, um, you know, within the same tradition, but they're challenging what they understand to be unjust uh, uh, and, and uh, masculinist interpretations of religious texts. So the backlash, of course, has come from ultra-conservative circles who do not want the status quo to be questioned. It has served them very well for the past few centuries, and as far as they're concerned, it should serve everyone quite well till the end of time, right? We, we will always have um, diehards of that sort in any given society. But they also slowly, and this is the part that I think gets left out of accounts of, their, of these movements, I think particularly here in the West, that, but they're also gaining supporters and allies from even among the, the clerical establishment in these countries. Zayna Anwar actually has quite a few supporters within the traditional uh, scholarly, uh, religious scholarly elite in, in Malaysia who have worked with her to disseminate some of the literature that they are producing, um, you know, to, to uh, as I, if I can use those terms again, to undermine and challenge uh, the patriarchal interpretations of these verses. So there's backlash, but then there's also, I think, you know, uh, the, I think the tide is also slowly beginning to turn because they are making cogent arguments and they are making these arguments firmly from within the Islamic scholarly tradition. And, and that's, that's a really important point, so thank you for clarifying that. What about, what are some particular sorts of patriarchal doctrines or interpretations or understandings of uh, Islamic law that are being challenged that you think are particularly salient? Right. Um, well, I mean, there's, of course, the famous Quranic verse 434, right, where men are uh, said to be the supporters, the custodians, the caretakers, however you want to translate the Arabic word, qawamun, uh, over women. So, um, of course, in the pre-modern period, um, given the, the, the social and political realities on the ground, this was understood to mean that men are the automatic caretakers and guardians, right? If you use that word in English, I think we get a sense of what, what that would then imply in a legal context, that men were ultimately the, the undisputed heads of the household. But the verse actually does go on to say, because they provide, right, for the family, because they're the economic breadwinners. So um, 
feminist scholars are looking at this text and saying, well, you know, this is not an absolute pronouncement on uh, male guardianship within the family. What it, what it is saying is that it's actually a functional uh, superiority, not an ontological one. In other words, men, by virtue of being men, are not being placed in these positions of uh, maintenance and caretakers. Um, rather, it, as long as they're the sole breadwinners, then of course they are uh, responsible for the financial well-being of the family. So the question then becomes, as increasingly women work outside the home and are economically independent, how does that affect our understanding of that particular uh, verse? Then I, I think logically one should say that if women become the economic breadwinners of the family, then of course they're also entitled to that uh, position of kiwama, of, of guardianship, if you like, or of uh, maintenance uh, for the family. So uh, these kinds of interpretations, which were, would not have been possible, I think, in the pre-modern period, because, you know, women just did not work outside the home uh, to the extent that they do now, and they certainly did not most of the time have independent sources of income, uh, this kind of interpretation would not have suggested itself to uh, exegetes in the pre-modern period, but increasingly, with more and more women engaging the same text, they are reading this, these texts through a gendered and egalitarian lens and questioning the, the premises of the pre-modern times, you know, which don't match our own. Uh, so I think in itself... Uh, this is a very cogent reading of the Quran. Uh, you may, you know, if if you're inclined to support a patriarchal family where the man is indisputably the head of the household, you will dismiss this as newfangled interpretation. But um, if you are fair and objective in your in your um, attitude towards uh, these texts, then you will admit that this is a cogent and plausible understanding, and perhaps even a better reading of the verse, and that is, in many ways, much more, of course, eminently suitable to our own times, where uh, the family is being reconfigured as, as more of an egalitarian institution rather than a patriarchal one. Yeah, so the, the context ends up being very important. And so then you move on the next chapter to talk about war and peace. And so this Particularly, this relates to previous research of yours on jihad and war and violence. So, right. could you say something? Was, was this was this chapter? Um, did you take it into consideration a little bit differently? Since this is something that you've spent so much time thinking about previously, I, I guess in some ways it was one of the harder chapters for me to write because I was essentially condensing a lot of what I had already discussed in my earlier monograph uh, on jihad and martyrdom uh, in Islamic thought. And uh, there's so much that I wanted to use from that book just because it's so relevant to our contemporary period. But I really had to cut that down. I should say, by the way, I was, I was really being held to a very strict word limit, so I could not obviously go beyond that because they would have pulled a plug on me then. Um, so I had to um, summarize many of my findings from that book and um, uh, shape it in a way that it would make sense 
in in a much more reduced format. So, I mean, you've read it. I hope I hope the points I was trying to make uh, got through to you, perhaps. Yeah, uh, obviously, it's it's uh, one one chapter is shorter than a monograph, but mm-hmm. it, it fits into the overall narrative of what you're doing in this particular book, which has to do with you know short, concise chapters rather than longer, more in depth. Um, right. you know, things. So what, what kinds of, what are the issues in war and peace that you want the reader to know from your book as gargantuan of a topic as that is? Yes. Um, well, if you recall, uh, the beginning of the chapter, I said that I would, uh, revisit three popular perceptions that exist about jihad, right, among many. Um, And and the first is jihad is relentless bloody warfare that should be waged by Muslims against non-Muslims until the end of time, Um, and that Muslims can issue the call to such a jihad anytime and anyhow. Uh, And then the third one, that when Muslims argue that a true military jihad is only defensive and conditional, while the internal non-violent jihad is continuous and unconditional, that they are deliberately lying about the real nature of jihad uh, and are to be regarded as apologists for their faith. So um, I present the findings from my earlier research to show that there, there was, in fact, an amazing diversity of views on the purview, on, on, first of all, the meanings of jihad. Jihad, of course, is not warfare or fighting, uh, as is commonly understood today. Uh, jihad, of course, in its basic meaning means struggling, to struggle, to strive, to make an effort in anything. I mean, it can be, you know, as banal as uh, making an effort to get up in the morning and start your day. I mean, this is what I love telling my students, that I actually carry out jihad every day because I'm always constantly struggling and striving to do certain things. Um, And so are they, even though they may not be aware of it. Um, and then to show how, um, the, you know, the notion of the military jihad does come about, and, the, the, you know, there's a historical context for all this, and uh, we have to be aware of the unfolding of this discourse on jihad in specific historical contexts and milieus. And one of the, one of my um, happiest finds, uh, I think, uh, while doing research for the monograph initially and, and and which I do mention in the chapter, is that um, Quran 9.5, which we, almost all of us tend to refer to in, in English, at least as the sword verse, in Arabic ayat the saif, was actually not called that until Ibn Kathir uses it in his tafsir during the Mamluk period. There is, there's, again, a history behind the, the development of such terms, and it tells us that because the Mamluk period was such a fraught time, right? The Islamic world was under siege and there was this need to stave off these um, aggressive invaders from the outside, right? We're talking about the Crusaders, we're talking about the Mongol invasions. So even Kassir deploys this verse in that particular context and calls it the Ayat the Safe, the sword verse, to indicate that this was the primary duty of Muslims at that time to defend themselves from the onslaughts of outside aggressors. And this was a burning moral imperative, not unlike the mentality that we see in contemporary America, right, after 9-11, that there's a sense that 
our way of life is under attack by these, um, you know, barbaric invaders, and we have to defend ourselves against them. Well, Ibn Kathir felt that way against the attacks of the Crusaders and the Mongols, and um, and therefore highlighted this verse as containing within it uh, a religious commandment for the Muslims of his time, and I think that's important to emphasize, for the Muslims of his time to um, to carry out military defense of Islamic realms from the aggression of outsiders. So if we do not contextualize these discourses, then I think we do fall into a deadly trap of, um, you know, essentializing uh, what jihad means. Uh, and, uh, you know, essentializing uh, the way uh, Islam is practiced and, and uh, in, inflected uh, in, in diverse circumstances. So when you look at contemporary um, resistance movements, uh, whether it's the so-called Islamic State or Al-Qaeda, do you, right. see, do you see their... Their intellectual leaders, what kind of awareness do you see them giving to these kinds of historical contexts? And are they, are they ignoring the historical context or are they interpreting them, um, you know, in a convenient, for lack of a better word, sort of way? Yeah, they're definitely ignoring the historical context. And you will notice that they do give uh, more prominence to, uh, exegetes to commentators from the Mamluk period, and among some of the favorite authorities are Ibn Taymiyyah and Ibn Kathir, for obvious reasons, because they were writing these hortatory works, right, exhorting the population to uh, rise up against uh, the invaders and bear arms and carry out jihad in defense of Islamic realms and the Muslim way of life. Uh, if you deep decouple these texts from the historical milieu, then you would think, oh, look, these are perfectly legitimate Muslim authorities calling for jihad to be carried out against um, non-Muslims and so forth. So absolutely, these texts are, shall we say, a godsend to these people, to Al-Qaeda and ISIS militants, because they can, they can cite from them and present them as legitimate texts that they're drawing from, from to um, to uh, you know grant uh, religious luster and legitimacy to their own militant projects. That's the danger of reading this text in this kind of a historical vacuum. So, since your next chapter is about America, what mm. kinds of connections do you see between issues of war and peace in a modern Islamic context, vis-a-vis? Uh, particularly American or Western military imperialism, as well as political influence more broadly? Well, I think it's important to emphasize that, um, you know, the the militant groups we've been referring to, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and all these other groups, they don't just grow up, uh, you know, kind of uh, in an auto-generative moment. Uh, There are specific circumstances on the ground that explain the the genesis of these movements. Um, You know, we've had, of course, the the American invasion of Iraq, and um, political analysts much more qualified than me to comment on on these uh, issues have pointed out that uh, 
you know, the rise of ISIS actually in many ways is a direct result of these um, misguided militarist adventures in the Middle East uh, that we didn't simply had no instances of suicide terrorism and bombing in Iraq before the invasion. And I'm reminded of Robert Pape's excellent work showing that there is indeed a connection between military occupation of, of territories and the rise of specifically suicide terrorism in those areas. So there's definitely a link between the kind of um, militancy that we're seeing in Parts of the Islamic world and the um, the, the the military uh, uh, campaigns that have been launched in the Middle East by America and also uh, other European allies. So there's definitely uh, an organic connection between the two. I think that's what you're driving at in your question. I think. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, fo- focusing back on the notion of American Islam. So obviously you're you're based as a scholar and professor in the United States, but what were what were some of the other reasons that you wanted to focus on American Muslims and the expansion of the Ummah as a point of focus in your book? Right. Um, well, I think it's important to show that um, Islam is no longer just you know a religion out there, right? Uh, Islam is very much a part of the Western world now. Uh, Muslims are um, increasingly becoming an influential minority uh, in Europe and the U.S., and they're making their presence felt in a number of different ways. So I think we have to uh, rethink the whole notion of the Ummah, where traditionally it was meant uh, to indicate what today we can call the Islamic heartlands, right? The the Middle East, uh, North Africa, uh, South Asia, Southeast Asia, and so forth. Um, Islam has definitely become a Western phenomenon. And so that's leading to um, a development of even new jurisprudence uh, and I discussed that in that chapter on American Muslims, you know, where I talk about the jurisprudence of minorities, the fiqhul aqaliyat, which I think is a very interesting development in the Western context. Um, Muslim jurists always assumed that Muslims would live in Muslim-majority societies, and that was the ideal situation because if they lived under Muslim rulers and under the protection of Muslim law, then their right to worship as they please uh, would be safeguarded, right? And their rights as human beings, and especially to live with dignity, would be uh, would be protected in a Muslim environment. So there is a dearth of literature on how to um, function as a Muslim and how to be a committed Muslim while being a citizen in the modern sense and a modern nation state that is not guided by the Sharia, that is not under the protection of a Muslim ruler. And so this is where the largest challenge, I think, has cropped up for um, many modern Muslims who make their homes in the West. And um, I, I see some very interesting creative things coming out of the American Muslim scholarly community that I think in many ways is also influencing uh, juridical discourses in the Islamic heartlands, uh, people read each other's works, and I think there's an interesting exchange of ideas, debates. Not everyone is on board, of course, with the notion, say, of the 
the jurisprudence of minorities. Some people are seriously challenging it, but it's it's healthy. It's um, it's 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 good for us to have these kinds of uh, internal debates and and discussions among ourselves. Uh, it, it fosters creativity and it uh, keeps the whole notion of uh, intellectual thinking. Um, it's a strong and vibrant in Muslim communities. Who are who are some U.S.-based Muslim scholars that you see having particular mm. influence across the heartland, as you put it? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I, I think of someone like Khaled Abul Fadl. I think you know who is uh, quite prominent in uh, the American Muslim community. Um, and I also think of someone like Tariq Ramadan, who I do discuss in the book in Europe. Right. And who has also quite a following in the Islamic heartlands. I think his books are regularly translated into Arabic and, and uh, frequently traveling there and, and speaking to um, you know, Muslim audiences. So I, I, there are a number of such scholars. Um, you know, not, not a whole lot, but then uh, some of them are more influential than others. And so I think their, their thought does make quite a bit of an impact overseas. And it's, it's a two-way street. I mean, you also have scholars in the Middle East. Um, I mean, someone like Yusuf Al-Qarada, I'm sure he's very controversial, but his works are also studied in the West. And it is engaged with, even if you might disagree with a number of his positions. Right. And so on this note of engagement, you, you end the book by talking about interfaith issues. What, right. what, what prompted you to want to end the book with that focus? Well, I think because it's such an important topic and interfaith dialogue has been going on actually for a long time, but I think a lot of people, especially in the academic world, are not aware of this. Right. Um, but I think we need to raise our awareness of that because it's going to be vital to the whole concept of uh, coexistence in the future. You know, again, as these national boundaries slowly begin to dissolve, and you know, there's more of a, uh, you know, there, there, there's more interaction among people of all different kinds of religious and cultural backgrounds. I mean, this is something we have to take very, very seriously. Now, of course, for Muslims in particular, there are real challenges and obstacles, though. Um, again, because, you know, of terrorist activities that are carried out by fringe groups, but they do it in the name of Islam. And so many non-Muslims think that their activities reflect on all Muslims, right? And that um, their militant interpretations of jihad and rights of non-Muslims um, are then understood to be characteristic of Islam as a whole, but as I discuss in the book, uh, there are also um, many hopeful signs that continuing dialogue between Muslims and non-Muslims uh, is beginning to bear fruit and that there is more public awareness and condemnation of bigotry directed against Muslims. I talk about pushback against Pamela Geller, for example, and her hate-mongering campaign. And I've also talked about the broad public support that has been shown for the Park 51 project in New York. Um, so I think uh, these are positive signs. And I also do think that um, it makes a difference that Americans, non-Muslim Americans in urban settings are routinely meeting and interacting with Muslims. And that alone has a great effect on public perceptions of Islam. And it just doesn't seem as foreign anymore. 
right? And I'm I was happy to see this have its own chapter as well as end the book because along the lines of what you're saying about gender, how you know there's uh, movements advocating women's rights who aren't just fringe, but they actually they have support of society, and so interfaith relations, you know, we're not. CNN or Fox probably isn't going to cover the different types of interfaith dialogues happening around the Muslim world. But of course, it's something that is taking place, whether we, you know, see it on the news or not. So I'm glad that you were able to emphasize that. So as as, as we wrap up, um, you've, you talked about being influenced by your students as you thought through the architecture of this book. Have you had a chance to use these chapters in particular in the classroom? either for undergraduate or graduate students? Well, actually, I haven't had the chance to use the book myself because I've been on sabbatical leave this academic year, uh, but I do want to use it for future courses. Now, a couple of my colleagues have already adopted this text for courses they're currently teaching on modern Islam, and so I'm waiting to hear from them about uh, how that turned out. Uh, one colleague did write to me and said that it had worked very well for her class in Islam, so I was very encouraged by that. My own advice would be, and this is how I plan to use it in the future, is to use it in more um, discussion-oriented classes and seminar formats. Um, I think the instructor would have to unpack some of the uh, concepts and you know, ideas uh, floated in the book, unless the students have already had prior exposure to courses in Islam. That would make your life much easier, of course. But uh, I think, you know, one can also teach this to students who've never taken a course in Islam before, um, even as early as their freshman year. But I think, again, the instructor would have to be deeply involved in the text uh, herself or himself and uh, uh, guide the discussions. But given the fact that you know, most of the students that have been exposed to some of these topics, you know, just by watching TV or, you know, going on the Internet. And so I think they will come in with a natural interest in these topics and they will want to be engaged in these discussions. And that's what I'm hoping will happen when I do plan to use it in, in one of my classes. And uh, I'd love to hear from others uh, who may adopt this textbook uh, for their classes, how that turns out. And it, it strikes me as having a natural pedagogical value as well, just the way that it's organized and the chapters could be used as standalone or um, used together. And I'll, I'll add that I, I personally found your, your writing to be lucid, which I couldn't say about all academic writing. So I, I think that, yeah, certainly undergraduates even could benefit from this, which I think is a, is a great uh, accomplishment for a writer who's able to do that. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate hearing that. So before we conclude, could you tell us a little bit about what your future projects are and do they, do they relate to the research you did for this book? Are they, are they different? So in the next five to 10 years or so, what do you see yourself working on? Yeah. Well, I um, recently signed two book contracts with uh, Oxford University Press. Uh, one is for producing a more popular version of my 2013 monograph on jihad that would be more suitable for a general audience. My earlier monograph, uh, I have to admit, is pretty dense because it engages in very close textual study, and that can be hard going for most people. So the idea is to distill the findings from that book into a much more accessible and popular version 
for a much broader audience. And then the second contract is for editing a volume on gender issues within Islam for the Oxford Handbook series. Uh, and both these works, I think, will um, engage me uh, for, I would say, the next four or five years or so. So that's that's the trajectory of my um, my my writing plans for for the immediate future. Well, it sounds like an exciting lineup of things to work on. And thank you so much for joining us this morning, Esma. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Elliot. I really enjoyed our conversation. Wonderful. That was my conversation with Esma Afsaruddin, professor of Near Eastern Languages and Cultures at the University of Indiana, about her exciting book, Contemporary Issues in Islam, published by Edinburgh University Press in 2015. Thanks for listening.